0: You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Michael Blanc about how to achieve financial freedom through real estate investing and how to invest in apartment buildings as a new investor. Michael is an entrepreneur, successful real estate investor, and author. Throughout the episode, Michael breaks down a lot of limiting beliefs that new investors have, many that I also had myself. And he explains how there is billions maybe even trillions of private capital for real estate investors to tap into when looking for funding for their next real estate deal. Whether you decide to invest in apartment buildings or not, I hope this episode at least helps you break down the barriers you have holding you back from getting started.
1: You're listening to Real Estate Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. With me today, I have Michael Blanc. Welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Hey, Robert. great to be here.
0: Let's start by talking about your story and how you got into real estate investing. Then we'll dive into a tactical conversation to help us learn how to achieve financial freedom through real estate
1: investing. I grew up without being surrounded by entrepreneurs. So I kind of did the, you know, the normal track, which is you know, get good grades, which I did, get a good job, which I did. I got into computer science, actually used to be a programmer. After several jobs, I was in the right place at the right time in the late 90s, but a company called Web Methods, and we went public in March of 2000 and put a bunch of money in my pocket, which is great. I was the man, Robert. I was the man. And then 2004, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which subsequently ruined my life. Because when I read that book, I was so confused because I thought I was pretty smart, which maybe I am. But when I read that book, I was like, God, I'm such an idiot. Like, I can't can't believe it that I was so misguided about finances and what I'm striving for. And, And after some significant hemming and hawing, I decided to pursue financial freedom. Because I had a bunch of money, I decided to quit my job and pursue everything at once. So I took all these classes. I took a house flipping class, a apartment boot camp, trade stocks and options. And that was just all fascinating to me. I really love learning. But my big idea was restaurants, and the reason is because I knew a bunch of restaurant franchisees in, in a burger business, and they're like, "Yeah, you hire a guy, they run everything, and you just sit back and count the passive income." I'm like, "Oh, that's exactly what I wanted." So I went all in, right? I went all I, t- I t- put everything in there, and I hired a guy, super experienced multi unit restaurant operator. And it was great for like a period of three years, two, three years. I was in a state of semi-retirement. I built a co- restaurants, I bought some and improved them. It was fantastic until the recession hit. And that changed things quite a bit. And I'll make a long story very short. I subsequently lost my IPO millions in the restaurant business, barely got out of it, added not only did I exhaust my cash, I added a couple hundred thousand dollars of lines of credit that I got in the heyday. I exhausted that, maxed out my credit cards, almost lost my house. And then I was like, Well, what am I gonna do? And I had flipped a couple of houses up until that point. And I would look at all the things that I've done. And I was like, I'm really gonna flip some houses. I need to get myself out with real estate. So now all my money at this point wasn't lost yet, it was deployed in the restaurants as they were losing money. So I hadn't gotten that, I hadn't completely lost. That's kind of sort of had it, but I didn't have any money to invest. So I asked people if they were willing to loan me money for a house flip. You know, my brother in law was like, Yeah, okay, I'll pay a 12% interest. And so I started raising all this money and buying two houses a month. And it was making good money. I was, you know, there was this this giant leak in the in the in the boat on one end, and I was shoveling money on the other end to kind of keep it net zero. And then I actually also got into an apartment building. It was a twelve unit, Washington D.C. Kind of one of my wholesalers brought it to me. I was like, wow, I had this up. I did this boot camp a little while ago, back in two thousand whatever six. And I did actually spend nine months looking for deals in Texas at the time. But then I got into restaurants. And I had to put it all on hold. So. So I dusted that off, and I got into this apartment building, and then it was a complete nightmare. Finally, it stabilized, and I'm flipping houses, flipping houses. And after a while, I was like, damn, I felt like I, I created a job for myself. Because if you're not, if you're not buying, fixing, or selling, you're not making, making money, and then the money stops. And I was like, well, that's not really what I wanted. It's not really financial freedom. I can't take a month or two off, which I do now. And I was like, Man. and meanwhile, this apartment building is boring apartment building. Just kept sending me mailbox money. I got to say, I got to do more of that and less of this. And that's kind of how it started. I started blogging about it. How do you raise money? How do you syndicate? Uh, no one used that word at the time. People were just interested in, in that. And that's one thing led to another. And so, you know, today we have all these resources that help people syndicate apartment buildings. And yeah, so that's how I got started in real estate. Kind of misguided, and like so many people. You just all get started with single family houses. And uh, that's how I got started.
0: It sounds like that first deal is important. And I've heard you talk about this law of the first deal idea. And it's a concept that I actually talk about a bit as well. But for those who haven't heard of this law before, please explain what it is and also why you think it holds true.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So first of all, you observe the law and I'll give you some speculation about why it holds true. But the observing is that in the multifamily, first of all, in my opinion, investing in apartments is the most direct route to financial freedom of all the stuff I've ever done. Most direct, most replicatable, most learnable for the average person in the world, regardless of their background experience, money, or the lack thereof. And so what I observed is that, you know, the first deal was this pivotal point where up to that first deal, the first deal is always the smallest, takes the longest and the hardest. It's kind of a struggle. And then once that person closes that deal, they're literally away a year away or less from quitting their job. And it's because the second and third follow in rapid, almost automatic succession. You'd have to expend more energy. To not do the second deal. In fact, some people have tried and failed. It just comes to you, it's like this, there's a switch in the universe that flips on where all of a sudden you become a deal and a money magnet. Now the reason why I think this is is because brokers typically they try to, you know, they deal a lot with a lot of tire kickers. So when someone new calls and they try to get you off the phone. And if you sound like a newbie, they'll ask you for proof of funds, so you go away. And so sometimes some people don't take you seriously. Also, potential investors might say, you know what? I'm not so sure you're kind of a newbie. I'm just going to wait till you you know, get some track record. Now, once you get that track record, an amazing thing happens. All these investors that were on the fence missed out on the first deal, which obviously worked well. They're like, oh, I'm like, I better get myself a second deal because he's going to be subscribed. And all of a sudden, brokers that never return your phone call, all of a sudden, are calling you for some off market or semi off market deal. And it's it's amazing. It's amazing. And and people really, while I talk about it a lot, they can't really understand it until it happens to them. And it happens when I have podcast guests on on my show, and I ask them because my gosh, I I know you talk about it, but I didn't actually believe it until it happened to me. And yeah, I think that's that's it. And, so, and this is why. The reason this is important is because it simplifies the problematic of financial freedom to just one thing. You know, the Gary Keller book, the one thing, just get one deal done. And the beautiful thing about it, there's no correlation to size of deal either. Even people who have done a duplex literally quit their job in a year because it's a progression. It's normally, like, let's say you start with a duplex, it normally goes 10, it goes 2, 10, 25 plus at that point. If you started at 25, it goes 50 and then plus. So it's always a step up. Why is that? It's because your your confidence goes goes up, your tracker rate is higher, that attracts bigger deals, your comfort zone expands. All those things contribute to progressively larger deals. In single family houses, even if your comfort zone expands, you, you can only ever do one house. So it doesn't the effect of that is not them. Yes, you can flip more houses, but the effect is limited by the sheer fact that it's just a single house that you're and you don't have that issue on the apartments.
0: So let's talk about how apartment buildings are actually accessible by new investors with no prior experience and no cash of their own? Because I think a lot of people, when they get started, they start with single family or small multifamily for various reasons, some of which include intimidation, lack of knowledge, experience, and cash. So how can they buy apartment buildings without any of those things?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because when I talk about these things about cash flow and retirement, they're like, oh yeah, that's awesome, Michael. Great. But here's the thing. I don't have the experience for that. And I don't have the cash for it. So I'm just going to invest in single family houses for the next five or 10 years and get the experience from that and the money I make, and I will then roll it into apartments, which is not a bad plan. It's better than 99.9% of the other parts of the population. But the thing is, is unnecessary. In fact, it's a distraction. I thought it was a stepping stone and I found that it was exactly the opposite of that. It didn't get me any closer uh, at all. In fact, it brought me away from that, which I really wanted, which was financial freedom, which I never got for single family houses. But the objections are real, at least in people's minds. I don't have the experience to have the money and they're kind of stuck. They throw up their hands. The truth of the matter is you can overcome both of them in incredibly quickly and easily. So let's talk about overcoming lack of experience. Typically for most things in life, you need some kind of experience to get something. If you want a job, you better have experience, something leading up to that job. Otherwise, why the heck would I hire you? In multifamily, it's not the case. And the reason it's not the case is that the one major difference in multifamily versus single family, a lot of other things in life, it's a team sport. It's a team effort. And there's always this idea of a team. There's no, you know, there's really no I. People who go it alone are eventually successful, but it takes a long time and the deals are much smaller versus people who get it and they have assembled a team. The benefits of that are multifold. Number one, if you don't have a track record, but you attract an advisor, you attract an SEC attorney, you attract a property manager. Now you have these people around you who believe in you and they, they love your enthusiasm and your ambition or whatever the case may be, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But now when you talk to people without your own track record, you talk to them in terms of your team and the collective track record of your team. And if you do that, if you talk about your property manager who manages 3,000 units in whatever, Atlanta... You know, when you talk to a broker, they probably already know that proper manager. Oh, Frank, he's a great guy. I've done a bunch of deals together. And all of a sudden, we're talking about Frank, not about you. And so there's this idea of leveraging other people's experience. And so it's just a matter of attracting those people. And how long does that take? 30 days, 60 days? It doesn't take 10 years to do that. right? It takes some amount of time. And so that's how you overcome the experience. Now, yes, education is important. You have to use the right language, like anything. Start golfing, and you don't use the, like some kind of language, or you step over the line, you break some unwritten etiquette rule. You're frowned upon, right? It's the same thing with anything you do, multifamily as well. So you have to use the right words. So you have to educate yourself. But that's something you can do by attending a seminar or doing a course, and so educate yourself so you're using the right language. But again, how long that does does that take? It doesn't take years either. So that's the experience part. Uh, we can talk about the money thing as well.
0: So how do you find those people to join your team? How do you actually get around those types of people and get them to accept to join your team and help you?
1: Well, I mean you can be very intentional about these things you can do a lot of things over the phone I love word of mouth myself right so let's say you're talking to a broker you can always ask them for referrals if you're talking to an, an attorney you can ask for referrals so you're always getting referrals to other team members and the more referrals you get to the same person you know the higher that quality of that of that person is and so so you can do a lot of work remotely on the phone and then when you've actually established a short list of people you want to work with at that point you want, might want to try to meet them in person and and build that rapport up really but that's that's how you do it. You can also meet them at events, even though having said that, there's specific team members you want on your on your team and you don't want to just go on an event and blind the network. It's got a, it's a very targeted thing. You want a proper manager number one and you want a lender number two. You need both of those, number one for credibility, but also for underwriting deals, because your property manager is going to help you analyze a deal when you're especially when you're doing it remotely. Well, how do you know the rents are 100 dollars under market? Well, you ask your property manager because he knows this kind of stuff, because they live there and they manage property there. So, you know, if I ask you, well, oh, Robert, you're projecting rents are 100 on market. Well, how do you know? Oh, I did a rental meter analysis. Like, yeah. Okay. I don't think it's going to work. Have you talked to a qualified property manager? And what do they tell you? Oh, I haven't done that yet. Well, okay. Then, you know, you don't have a deal right now as far as I'm concerned. And so you need a property manager on your team. And that's a very targeted outbound thing. So you're not going to events or meetups to see who you might meet. You're looking for specific people on your team.
0: And who do you contact to get those referrals? If you're brand new to real estate, you don't have any contacts, how do you find that right property manager? Do you just call some that are, you know, maybe show up on Google? We have technology now so you can find all these different people. You can read reviews. Do you call some of the highest rated ones, interview them, if you will, get some info from them, and then go that way?
1: You got to be creative, right? I mean, how do you find anybody? Uh, used to be the white pages or yellow pages. Well, now you have the internet, you have apartment associations that list professionals that are members, and they typically always uh, list property managers. Like I said, my preference is always word of mouth. And you can get this in a variety of different ways. I mean, if you're, for example, like I said, you talk to a broker, you get a referral from that. They know a lot of people in town. Also, if, let's say you're, you're driving in an area and you, there's an apartment you really like. Well, you go in and inquire who's managing that. A lot of times, there's a sign up front. Or if you Google an apartment building, there's a number on their website, and you can see who the property management company is. So you can find a property management companies in a variety of ways.
0: Yeah, I like to rely on my real estate agent because I invest a lot long distance in Texas. I'm here in the greater Boston area and I rely on my, my real estate agent. He's also an investor. So he knows, not just for, for property managers, but for everybody that I need on my team, he's able to give me those contacts when I was first getting started in that area. He's been able to give me that information and provide those referrals. So let's talk about the money portion of it. How can somebody get started with having no cash of their own?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is a kind of a limiting belief that I had as well, as I always thought that I, I need to rely on myself to do certain things for anything really, And then when I had to raise money for these house flips and someone, two people agreed to lend me money, this light bulb went off. I'm like, wait a minute, let me me go straight. I can buy houses without having any of my own money. And I make money in the process. Like that was That was crazy for me. And so really a lot of it is limiting belief. And with that become other limiting beliefs such as, well, first of all, I don't know anyone with money. Well, okay, that may be true right now, but there are people who know people and you don't know everybody in the world right now. For The example I always get is you go to a a meetup or real real estate association meeting and you look at the people in the room. And and if you were to do a poll, and I've done this before actually, and you say, hey, raise your hand if you've got at least $25,000 to invest and some kind of liquid asset or IRA, right? And a whole bunch of hands go up. You add that money. Okay, keep your hand up if you have fifty thousand dollars or more. You know, some hands go down, some stay up. Hundred thousand dollars or more. Some hands go down. So if you add up all the money in the room, there are millions of dollars of money in the room for people who are already thinking real estate in some way. Okay, so you either have passive investors in the room or you have joint venture partners in the room, right? So all of a sudden now you know you've met all these people who have money and are have real estate on the brain. There's a matter of of getting yourself out there and basically. What you're doing is you're not so much raising money; you're actually just sharing your enthusiasm with people. So you're talking, "Hey, I can't. You know, I'm so excited. I'm getting this apartment building thing, and my investors they're getting a 10 to 15 percent return and $50,000 minimum, and I'm just really excited about it. You know, do you know anyone who might be interested in a you know in a quick phone call? And they're like, "I might be interested," or "Oh, my brother is interested. He's got a rental house." And so you kind of. You just kinda of get a series of referrals to people. You share your enthusiasm. And instead of talking about the weather and the politics and the sports, you're a little bit more intentional in your conversations. You, and you say, Hey, this is what's new with me. I'm getting into uh real estate apartments. Really cool. Let me tell you about it. And you just kinda of take the conversation where it goes. That's really the art of raising money and getting people to believe in you.
0: And you also just never know who actually has money. That's one of the biggest things that I've learned. I actually worked at a local bank here for three years when I was in college. And then also now that I'm in real estate, I'd see people come into the bank. You think they have all the money in the world. They're dressed very nice. They drive a nice car, have all the nice watches and phones and things like that. But then they actually didn't. And vice versa, people that didn't look like they had money would actually have a lot of money. And the same goes for real estate. As soon as I started putting myself out there as a real estate investor, all of these friends and family members started reaching out to me. Oh, I'm interested in real estate. I'm interested in this or that. You know, How can we work together? And I had no idea. These are people that I've never talked to about money in my life. And I never had any clue that they were interested in these types of things. So you just never know really where those people could come from.
1: But you never really know. And, and a lot of people also say, oh, I, I don't want to take money from friends and family. I'm like, why? I don't want to lose their money. Well, okay, you shouldn't lose anyone's money. Well, I don't, what, I don't know what difference it makes whether you use someone you met at a meetup or your friends and family, right? You shouldn't lose any money at all, ever, right? And the other thing, the other way to look at it is you're really actually serving people. People with money have problems. Maybe not the same as you and I, but they have certain problems. For example, they can't get a reliable, consistent return on their money in the stock market. This really irritates people because a lot of people barely remember the last recession, and they've certainly been through this particular one. They're like, I can't do any financial planning. I'm socking away my hard-earned money so I can retire when I'm whatever, 65 or 60 or whatever the case may be. And now I can't. Like I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. And so they have this problem because of the uncertainty of the stock market that they can't predict their financial future. And that's, very, that's irritates them. Also, there's no way to get cash flow from that. And they pay taxes on top of that. And so these people have problems. You can help them with their problems. Hey, how's the stock market treating you? Oh, not so good. Well, yeah, not so good. Well, well, I, I got an alternative to stock market that you might like. You do? Is it legal? Does it involve drugs or, or something else? You know. And so now you have an, an an in where you can share with them about this alternative to the stock market, and this educates them and they're like I didn't know that, right? I didn't. And so now you're actually helping them. And so you withholding this thing from your friends and family is actually doing them a disservice. You're actually being selfish.
0: You also mentioned when you were doing that poll at the REIA meeting, the RIA meeting, that you could get funds from an IRA. Talk to us a little bit about how people can raise money from people through their retirement accounts.
1: This recalls a story with Greg, one of my neighbors. I know him from the Boy Scouts. And you know, I had warm chatter with people about what I do. And he goes, oh, you know, I, I'd like to maybe learn more about those through lunch. I said, that's great. So I described the whole thing and 40-minute mark. I said, yeah, the minimum investment is $50,000 and la, la, la. And he goes, I don't have that much to invest. I got like five. I'm like, oh, really, Greg? Crap, maybe I should have mentioned that before. We, You know, whatever. I said, okay, well, do you have an IRA? yeah, I got like half a million in the IRA. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? And and he's not the only one. A lot of people through their employer have been socking away money in their IRA for years. The problem is they don't know they can use it, for investing in anything about the stock market. So their first reaction is, yeah, but I got to pay penalties and with early withdrawal fees. No, you actually don't. And so when you educate them about the idea of investing with IRAs, the first one is surprise because their CPA or financial advisor will tell them, no, they can't. It's illegal. It's not. And so you need to educate them around that, maybe show them some news articles or something like that where they can invest with the IRA And that. There's a lot of capital in there. And some And some syndicators focus on the IRA investors. These are, not as sophisticated. They don't expect a high rate of return, and they're getting really, really low returns in a high volatility environment. So IRA money, there's trillions of it. I don't know what the number is, but there's a lot of it. And it's all invested in stocks and mutual funds that people don't even know where they are. So IRA is a massive source of capital.
0: And when we talk about using retirement funds, we're not talking about logging into your Vanguard account or Fidelity account and using that same type of account, correct? We're talking about having to set up a different account, which is called the SDIRA, which is a self-directed IRA. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between that type of an account that you can use for real estate and what you can't use for real estate.
1: So you have to open up a, a separate IRA it's a, with a, an IRA custodian. And there's, there's just, you can just Google IRA custodian And the only difference is that you write a form to your Vanguard and they transfer whatever money to this IRA custodian. Once it's in the account, you fill out a form that says, hey, I want you to wire X amount of dollars to this particular LLC that I want to invest in. And that's exactly what they do. And now your IRA has shares in an apartment building or an LLC or a nightclub, whatever you want to own, right? I don't care. And so you can, what's uh, it's called self-directed. So you can direct yourself where that money goes. And the law allows a very broad spectrum. Now, there are some laws governing it. For example, you can't invest your own deal. It's got to be an arm's length transaction where you can't directly benefit. And of course, you can't have any of the money coming back in your grubby little hand that's got to go back into the IRA. But there's a problem with the IRA investing, and that is you are subject to a tax, believe it or not which hit me like 15 years ago when I invested with my IRA in an actually an apartment building a long time ago before I even got started in this myself. All of a sudden, I was notified that I have to pay a tax. It's the UBIT tax, the unrelated business income tax. In my IRA, I'm like, what are you talking about? This is tax-free. No, the UBIT is triggered for investments that use leverage or a mortgage like real estate normally does. So when this guy sold his apartment building, it triggered his tax. So I had to file taxes out of my IRA. I had to get an EI tax ID number. I had to file retroactively to 2007, pay penalties and interest and in filing fees for not having filed the tax. And it was a god awful mess. And I'm like, this can't be. This cannot be. So, what's the solution to that, you might ask? And it's to set up a solo 401k. And my good friend Damien Lupo talks about this. It's called the EQRP. EQRP is essentially a solo 401k that bypasses the, the, the UBIT entirely. But the best thing, well, that's, that's pretty darn good because it saves you basically taxes. It's a little more expensive to send, to send up. But uh, not much more. And you can also sign the documents yourself, which is a a major benefit because when you're investing in a syndication, it moves very quickly. Sometimes these things are sold out so quickly, but the paperwork process with your custodian can take days, sometimes even a week. And by that point, they're already subscribed because the process requires a custodian to sign the documents on your behalf. So you're not signing it directly. The whole thing is horseman or myself, but that's the process with this solo 401k, you can sign, you are your own custodian. I'm my own administrator, so therefore I can sign subscription agreements, everything else myself and get it done within an hour or two. So I really love that. So we're directing all of our past investors to the EQRP route for those reasons.
0: So I love this idea as well. I've studied it quite a bit. So I know a decent amount about it. I definitely don't know everything, but I know I know enough to be dangerous. And obviously, you know quite a bit about it as well. So I think it could be intimidating for a lot of people though that hear this. We hear this conversation, you and I kind of get it. We can have this conversation, but people listening might not, who don't have the background that we do, might have, they just might be thinking, this just sounds too complex. How do you explain this to people when they haven't done anything like this before? So if you're going to someone and you want to raise money from them, how do you explain this to them in simple terms so that they understand what they're actually doing and you can actually get access to their funds?
1: look, I mean, there's going to be some people who are more ready than others. Some people are going to be resistant to the idea because change is is a scary thought. Every person moves on a different timeline. The point is that you're constantly educating your investors, wherever the stage they are. Eventually one day they'll hop on board, some sooner rather than, than later. I think the biggest thing from investor mindset is to have an open mind and to start really paying attention more to your financial future. Most people don't they sock their stuff away automatically. It's a direct you know, withdrawal from their account into their Vanguard account. You know, a mutual fund allocated X, Y, Z, they don't even know how much money they're putting in. They don't even know what it's, how it's doing. Or they have a financial advisor if they have a little bit more money and he's or she's doing some stuff. They don't really know what the heck's going on. And this is a problem. And none of these people are qualified, frankly, and the vehicle itself is not reliable. So the biggest thing is that when an investor person wakes up to that, especially recently, like, I got to start paying attention to stuff. Like, hey, maybe there's something I could have done had I known it or been reacted to it, or maybe my allocation could have been different. Maybe it's going to rattle us a little bit, and they're going to be more open to the idea of not only alternatives, but to start paying attention a little bit more. That's the thing. If people just kind of drift through stuff that they're not going to be your candidate, right? You need someone who's who's curious, who's looking for alternatives, and who's prepared to put a little bit of time into it. Because you're right, you've got to put a little time in to read a blog post or watch a video or read something. And you gotta put a little time to do some paperwork to actually move funds around. So there is actually some action required. And if someone doesn't want to do that, it's not going to be a good fit for them.
0: And so would this be considered in all cases, a syndication where you have to have legal filings with the SEC in order to do this type of thing, or can you do it on smaller deals without having to go through all of that with the SEC?
1: You also have to pay attention to the law, whether whatever you call it. And the, the SEC securities bear are, are really there to protect you. So the question I always get: Well, if you're doing a quota syndication and you're doing it with friends and family, do you need a private place? Do you need some of the SEC documents that cost twelve fifteen thousand dollars? And I say, well, it depends. The regulations are there to protect you, so. If you don't have if you don't file the proper filings and forms that cost money and the deal goes south, you know, and your investors start to want to sue you or or figure out how they can get you, they're going to call the state SEC and they're going to look and see if you have the filings. Oh, you don't have filings and they may launch an investigation on you, okay? Is that do you want that? Are your investors inclined to do that? If your investors are friends and family, are they really going to sue you? They may not speak to you at Thanksgiving anymore. Are they going to sue you? Are they going to call the SEC? I don't know. It's up to you, right? Probably not. Okay. So, do you want to do it for a small deal? It's up to you. It's, it's it is it is how you assess the risk of that. If you want to mitigate your risk, uh, then it is probably best to do that. Now, you can also structure the entities differently as well. You can do you can do uh, you know a joint venture, for example, where let's say it's you and, and five other investors. If you structure the LLC that they're all essentially equal partners, everybody's got an equal vote, even though you're doing all the work. That is that does not require SEC registration because everyone's equal. It's just a majority vote. But in typically, the reason that the SEC protects the investor, they are limited. Let's call them limited partners. Uh, they have limited liability, but they also have limited involvement. And because they have limited involvement, they don't have major say over things. That is why they're being protected by these disclosures and things of that, that nature.
0: Yeah, that latter situation that you just mentioned was exactly what I was thinking about. Is I think there's probably people listening to this that are going to say, okay, this might be a good source of funds for me to do a deal. Maybe I could go out and get an 8, 10, 12 unit property. Do I really need to do a whole syndication for that? Or could I just do a joint venture and do an LLC? Can people still invest in the deal that way using their IRA? And yeah. then would I still need the paperwork from the SEC?
1: Yeah, again, like I described, if you do an equal partnership, the answer is, is no. You got to be careful with the IRA, though, but uh, with IRA money. But yeah, you don't, you, don't, you don't need that. But again, you should have your, obviously, I'm not an attorney and you should have your attorney advise you on these things. I'm just giving you a couple different, different ways to do it. Where you can save some money on the, on the attorney cost. And that's, that's certainly one way to do it.
0: And in that case of the joint venture LLC, again, I'm not an attorney either, but you have your operating agreement, which outlines a lot of what would be covered, I, I'm guessing, in the SEC documents. But so can you do that type of joint venture deal with these IRA funds that we talked about?
1: You certainly can if in a limited, a limited so if, if people are, are passive, limited investors, they can certainly invest with their IRAs. If you're an active person, unless you're a general partner, there are limitations. You can't use your IRA, invest in things that you control. Okay, it's, it's not an arms-like transaction. So you can't do that. You have to pay attention. If you're the active investor, the best thing to do is to, if you have an IRA, which you probably shouldn't, I still have mine from a long, long, long time ago. But if you do, you can invest with other operators and other people's deals as a limited partner.
0: So what is the definition of being active in that case? Say somebody like, Say, myself, I wanted to buy a 10 unit and I wanted to get people to invest in that with their IRA. And we were going to do it through an LLC. Is that technically considered an active investor for them?
1: If you structure it like an equal partnership, then yes. They're all considered active partners. They all have equal decision making. And so I would be very careful in having them invest in that deal. It would be better if you structure it more like a general partner, limited partner. And then, of course, SEC regs apply. And then you have to decide whether you want to go through the process or not.
0: And you mentioned leverage. So people are able to still get bank loans when they get funds from people's IRAs?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how about if we don't have a proof of funds letter, how can investors still get their offer accepted without this?
1: Here's the truth. If you sound credible and confident, you will not be asked for proof of funds. And the reason you ask for proof of funds is typically because you sound like a newbie. And this is a sure sign that you exactly just sound like a newbie. And this is what brokers tell you to go away because he knows that you probably don't have a proof of funds and you're going to go away, which is exactly what they want. But if you approach them from confidence and you're using the right language, for example, you call up a broker. This is what I used to do and I say, hey, hey, Mr. Broker, I'm the man. I have flipped a bunch of houses and I want to get into apartment buildings. What deals do you have? And what did he say? Ah, it's great, the man. Good to hear from you. I'll tell you what, you send me your proof of funds and I'll send you some deals. And I'm like, crap, I don't have a proof of funds. And I was like, I crawled away back into my hole going, what is wrong here? Why am I not getting any credit? These guys are not taking me seriously. After I figured out, I was making a whole bunch of mistakes in how I approach brokers. I used the wrong words. Number one, I didn't talk about my relevant background. Right. So if you approach someone like this, hey, my name is my name is Michael. I am uh, expanding into the Atlanta market, and we're looking at deals in the two to five million dollar ranges. We're working with property managing at XYZ. Uh, we're looking at things around the six to seven percent cap rates. Value add deals are preferred, but no repositions. Do you have anything in your pipeline that you can share? They're Like, are they going to ask you for proof of funds? Not likely. Maybe a half percent of the time because you actually sound like you're a player. And if you ask a player for proof of funds, I could offend you and therefore you would go away and I can do not business. So they're not going to risk that. They may require proof of funds down the road. Okay. But they're not at this point. They're not likely to ask for proof of funds because you sounded like a player. Okay. So boom. So that's the first thing. If a proof of funds is required, I always make it conditional on something signed, either a signed LOI or a signed purchase agreement. Okay. Cause sometimes it, the seller magically requires it. At the end of the day, it's kind of a trust issue, but let's say they insist on it. Okay. Always make it conditioned on a signed letter of intent or a signed purchase agreement. Within 72 hours, I will supply a proof of funds letter because getting a proof of funds letter is kind of a pain. You have to find a high net worth individual who's willing to call their bank or their financial advisor that writes a letter that says, this individual has at least $1 million under management here. And it's signed by the thing, and that's your proof of funds. So it doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't obligate them to invest, but it's a pain, right? And you can play that card every once in a while. But people think, oh, I'm just going to get this letter. Every time I make an offer, I'm going to call my my friend Joe. Oh, it's been 30 days. Oh, maybe I have to get another letter so it's more recent. No, don't do that. You're wasting everybody's time. In those very rare cases, and make it contingent on a signed, a signed document because that indicates that the deal is real. It's not some high in the sky thing.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that it can be a little bit of a pain to get that letter. And as you were talking about your explanation, I was smiling because I almost had that exact same situation. Early last year, I was making an offer on a property, and it was a very low-priced property. Like It wasn't a ton of money, and we were offering all cash, and they wanted a proof of funds. I mean, we were talking the language. We knew what we were doing they just still wanted a proof of funds, and I was. We called our banks because there was two or three of us going in on the deal together, and it was just going to be a huge pain. We felt a little offended, so we decided to walk away. We said, Good. "You know what? We're not. We're not dealing with this. Like, we'll just we'll go buy something else." So we walked what away. Happened? They came back to us. Uh, that's
1: right. They came yeah, back. I they came that.
0: back. They didn't require the proof of funds. We ended up actually getting the property. Apparently, they say they had seven offers. We ended up getting it for under asking, even though it was a contested offer. So. Yeah. It's, it's exactly what you said. It happens in real practice and it just happened to me not that long ago.
1: Definitely not a showstopper. That's a, another tactic just walking away. I'm offended. How dare you? It's really a trust issue, right? It's, it's the, the seller or the broker have doubt that you can actually close. That's really it. So how else? Proof of funds is one way to address the doubt and trust issues. How, how else can you do it? Well, in our world, there's these buyer interviews, right? Buyer interviews is where the broker and the seller actually interview the buyer. You have to fill this long questionnaire and then they ask you questions. How are you gonna do this? How are you gonna do it? what's your plan for that? Where's your financing? Who do you know? What are your references? Right. Because the sophisticated seller knows that this is a syndication. We don't have ten million dollars in a bank. We're gonna raise it. So what's the next best thing? It's relationship building. Let me get to know you a bit more. Right. So another great approach is hey, let's get together. If after the end of this meal, you don't think I can close, we'll part as friends.
0: Yeah, exactly. And for us it was just it just wasn't worth it. We had like seven or eight other offers out at the same time and we were just like, It's not worth it for us. We'll get one of the other deals and this is okay if we don't get this one. So So now I want to talk about analyzing deals because as if acquiring the building itself and everything that we've talked about isn't intimidating enough, I think the analysis of the deal adds additional complexity and doubt in new investors' minds. And I know you wrote in your book that investors can confidently analyze deals and make offers in as little as 10 minutes. So walk us through that process.
1: I think the the main problem is when you put it all together in, in totality, what we're talking about here people are keeping notes and the page is getting, you know, it's getting longer and longer. It's kind of an overwhelming thing. And I don't like that because most people then look at it and go, crap, there's 134 steps. It's for the birds. I'm not even getting to get started. Which is, we don't want to really keep it simple. And I always talk about, you just do the next three things, whatever the next three things are. So when you get into analysis and numbers, that's got point like, I don't know, 21 down the list of things to do next. <laughs> and so but happy, happy to do it. Just keep in mind that it's not something that the average person getting started should do next. It's something that will come and they will master that because it's actually not nearly as difficult as it sounds. Yes, it involves a spreadsheet of numbers, but it's not that difficult. I do remember when I got started with this in two thousand when I was marketing for deals in two thousand seven, it did take me four hours to quote make a ten minute offer because first of all, I didn't have the techniques we have today and didn't have the tools we have today. And it was really and you know, I spend all this time make the offer and then (laughs) And the broker died laughing at the end of the line because I completely missed the mark. And therefore, I just wasted four hours of my, of my day. Well, don't do that. Is there another approach? Yes, it's a 10-minute offer. And it's actually really simple. You don't even need a, a major spreadsheet for it. But it's really using the numbers that the broker is used to using, which is price, income, and value. And so I, don't wanna, I really don't want to get into math. But the point is you're using these parameters that the, that the main principle is that the higher the income, the higher the value, right, in general. So when these brokers send you a marketing package, there's uh, an income, an NOI, net operating income, expenses, income minus expenses equals net operating income, and the valuation of that building is based on that number by this thing called a cap rate. That's a multiplier, let's say. And and so therefore, if the income were to go up, the value would go up. If the income were to go down, the value would go down. Well, in most cases, the NOI, the income, is overstated. Right, expenses are lower and the income is magically higher. Therefore, the net operating income is higher. Therefore. To justify their asking price. Well, if you apply some simple rules of thumb to the income and the expenses, so on the income side, you know, use a 10% vacancy factor, meaning that if everybody paid their rent on time every single time and there was never a vacancy, there would be this amount, then just take 10% off that. Okay, great. On the expense side, use 55% of, of whatever that number is, that income number, and those are your expenses. And essentially, you can ignore everything else that's in the, in the marketing package. And from that, you can have an adjusted net operating income, and therefore, you apply this cap rate multiplier and you get a new value, which is almost always lower than asking price. Okay. And so when you get this, you call up the broker and you say, you know, I, I looked, it's a great it's a great deal, great package. I really like it a lot. So much pretty pictures in it. But you know what? Your income is a little, it's a little overstated because you're only showing like 3% vacancy. And I, I, in my experience, uh, it's more like by the time you're said and done, more like 10% okay. But in your expenses, you're showing about 36% of income is expenses. I really haven't cracked it open. I'm sure there's uh, some expenses missing somewhere, but in my experience, it's usually between 50 and 55%. Let's be generous and call it 50% and they'll be going, well, I, and if I adjust your income, it's now blah. And based on your cap rate that you just told me in your marketing package, the valuation is now 1.4 and you're asking 1.7. Is there any flexibility on behalf of the, of the seller or not? And now if they say, no, not at all. You suck. You're way off target. Go away. You only spent literally 10 minutes making your first offer. But if they say, well, it's not what we're looking for, but why don't you put something in writing? You are now somewhere in the ballpark of what the seller is actually looking for. And now when you're invited to put something in writing, normally it means that you're putting a letter of intent in place. Now you can crack open the, the syndicated deal analyzer spreadsheet and go deep on these numbers and come up with a number And now you can spend your four hours, but not before. Because most cases, they're looking for a price and you come in 20%, whatever lower, they're not really interested. So that's really how it works.
0: Yeah. You don't want to waste your time on the deals where you're not even close. At least get in the same ballpark, and then you can dive into them and see if your numbers make sense. And when you're analyzing a deal, do you have specific benchmarks for returns? Are you looking for a specific IRR? Are you looking at cash on cash? Are you looking at the cap rate? What are you looking at? And what are those benchmarks?
1: The benchmarks you mentioned are correct. The question is, what, what is their amount? What should those amounts be? And that really varies and depends heavily on your investors. For example, if your investors are friends and family, and you give them a 10% average annual return and a 4% cash on cash return every year, they're like, no way. I'm in. Where do I sign? Right? Because they're not getting that anywhere in the stock market. If you're dealing with sophisticated investors who are used to investing in oil and syndications, and that kind of stuff, they're going to expect higher returns, higher cash on cash returns. So it really depends on who your investors are but typically the returns are measured in cash on cash every single year and the average annual return. And I would use the word average annual return, by the way, even though the correct term is IRR, but the IRR is so complicated to explain to the average investor. And a confused mind says, no, so don't ever talk about the IRR unless you're dealing with a sophisticated investor who says, hey, and what is the IRR about that? Otherwise, average annual return, Everything's very simple. You put this much money in and five years, you get this month's money out and the average annual return is blah.
0: Yeah. That's a good point. You want to keep things as simple as you can when you're talking with the investors. So in these deals, how do you, or someone in your spot, when you're raising money, how do you make money in these deals?
1: Beautiful thing about syndications. Syndications allows you to make money out of nothing, essentially. And, and, and the reason I love it, and this is great for entrepreneurs, is that we entrepreneurs, we love creating stuff out of thin air, out of absolutely nothing. So as a syndicator, you're bringing different parties together that wouldn't exist without you. You're bringing a deal, you're bringing the money, you're bringing someone who's managing it all, and you're bringing all these people together and you're making something of value. And so for that, you get compensated. And you get compensated in three ways. One is you get compensated upfront when you buy the property, uh, something called an acquisition fee, which is typically 2 to 3% of the price, which if you do some simple math is a significant fee. Now, you might wonder, well, why do you deserve such a fee? And it's because Uh, there's so much work has gone into that one deal. That one deal probably means that you've looked at 100 other, 99 other deals. And if you divide your acquisition fee by the number of hours worked, you're almost working for minimum wage. And so it's while it's the beginning of the deal, a lot of time has transpired. So you should get paid for for that. There's also development fees potentially. If there's a heavy construction component, that fee could be split up when certain milestones are completed. For example, when the construction is completed, there could be a fee there. When a refinance or principal is returned, there could be a success fee there. And when the property is sold, you have fees in the beginning at the end. And you also have something called you can have something called asset management fees, which is typically whatever, one percent of the rent's collected, kind of like a property manager for managing the asset during all of this. So you get a kind of a, a payment up front, and then not really much in the middle and then at the end. So to cover overhead and put a little money in your pocket, you have something called asset management fees. And that's all if you don't have any of your own money in the deal. That's for you putting in the sweat equity. If you invest your own money, you are now also invested as a limited partner or a passive investor, and you get compensated separately for that.
0: Do you often get equity in the deal even if you don't put in your own capital?
1: Yeah, very much so. And typically, it really depends that you retain 20% of the deal, 30%. Sometimes, especially when you're getting started, the deals are smaller, Sometimes even higher. So in other words, so let's say it's a 20, 80, 20 split. The investor's putting up all the money, get 80% of the entire deal. You as the syndicator or the general partners, whatever that party is, gets the, what's called retain equity. The 20% is what they get for basic sweat equity. And so not only do they get paid an acquisition fee and asset management fees, thanks for reminding me, but also out of that particular equity bucket. So it's almost like they put in 20% of the money, but they didn't, but they're still getting paid 20% of the actual profit out of that general partner position.
0: So which of the return benchmarks that we've talked about is a deal breaker for you? If a deal doesn't meet this specific criteria, you won't pursue it just regardless of how good other things might be.
1: The biggest criteria is the returns for the investor. That is it, because at the end of the day, you need to be able to sell this deal to the investors, and that's the dividing line, right? So you have to decide what is the criteria, what is the lowest return you can present to your investors before they will not want to invest with you. And you typically cash on cash and average annual return, or let's say IRR. So you might say, for my pool of investors, I can't go below a 13% IRR, and I can't go below a 6% cash on cash return. Let's say, when you analyze this deal and you slice the pie up and you do a bunch of numbers, price, mortgage, fees, la, la. At the end, as soon as it drops below a 6% cash on cash and a thirty percent IRR, you can't go there. So you have a variety of levers you can pull. You can adjust the price, of course. You can adjust the mortgage. You can adjust your fees. right? You can just for particular levers. But the point is the that return has to be there. And it has to be realistic also. And this is the problem with numbers. I see a lot of syndicators putting out deals and you look at their underwriting and their assumptions, and they're just making stuff up. They're optimistic in many, many different creative ways to make the investor returns make. And it drives me batty because the unsophisticated investor will simply look at the returns. Well, he's got a higher turning you to, Michael, why should I invest with you? Now I have to explain to you that returns are not created equal. So it's not just the returns, it's also the assumptions behind those returns that are important.
0: And also the risk. I mean, everything is a uh, risk-weighted adjusted return, right? I mean, just because somebody can get 10% over here and somebody else can get 10% over here doesn't mean those 10% returns are equal by any means. Exactly right. So, so far throughout this whole conversation, we've assumed that it's a good idea for new investors to buy apartment buildings. And of course, you would argue that that is a good idea, but let's take the other side of the argument for a minute. Why might it not be a good idea to buy an apartment building as a new investor? And who might the strategy not be good for?
1: That is a good question because it's very broad. And I would almost say that it's really for anyone Who wants to quit their job, financial freedom, and they have real estate on a brain. It's literally that broad. The thing is, we talked a lot about different aspects. You put it all together and it's very, very complicated sounding, very overwhelming, and all the different pieces you have to do. But the beauty about it, we went back to talking about this is a team sport. And because it's a team sport, we see a lot of joint ventures and partnerships happening where one person is focusing on their strength in a particular area so that you don't have to do all the things we just talked about. So for example, some of the the easiest and best joint ventures are separated into two. One is the relationship person. They're bubbly, outgoing, love to talk to people. You put a spreadsheet in front of them, they freak out and they get a heart attack and die. Okay, And then you have the numbers person, a detail-oriented person, and you really need both, right? Because the, the, the relationship person is the one who uh, makes relationship with new investors, with brokers, but then you need a detail-oriented guy to actually crunch the numbers, uh, call BS on the broker on the seller, uh, handle due diligence, operate the asset, right? So it's not very common that a one person can do, can do both. And so these uh, partnerships, they really work really, really well. Now, there's other partnerships also, other components. One is the, the operation of the asset. Again, an operating person is quite a bit different than someone who raises money and buys and brings in deals. Right? That's a, more of a hunting mentality. The operator is more of an administrator, a manager. Right? Every single day, they're doing the same thing. They're managing the property. That could be another person as well. Then there's a fourth person, and this is the marketing person. Because as we scale our businesses, we have to start using online marketing techniques. And that is a totally different hat, totally different person to put out blog posts, videos, talk on social media, has nothing to do directly with raising money or finding deals. So while this is very overwhelming, really what you're doing is you're building a business where you have people who already love the thing that you hate to do and you find yourself. The thing they all have in common is the two things I just mentioned. They want financial freedom and they want to do it through real estate. And therefore, if you have those two things, that's who it's for. Now, if you don't want financial freedom, or you want financial freedom and you want to do something else, and this is not for you. But for people who have financial freedom and real estate on the brain, it is absolutely for you.
0: What is a common piece of real estate investing advice you hear given that you don't think is good advice? And how would you make that into good advice?
1: So the misguided advice is that real estate investing is your way to freedom. And that's only partially true because when they say real estate investment, it's single family houses. Now, I know a lot of people listening to this are probably single family house investors to some degree, and it's okay. I'm not saying you should throw the baby out with the bathwater and flip the multifamily right away. In general, and the same thing goes for your job, right? You should always continue what's working right now and build a side gig until you see it working and then you can pivot if that's what you want to do. But this is advice that I was given. I see over and over again, real estate investing is your way out. Is it? Hmm. I don't think so. At least it wasn't for me and a lot of other people. When you're doing single family house investing, it's a very active job. Now you can set up a company and some do that they do create a passive income stream from the single family house portfolio, but these guys are doing it at scale and they almost always have a property management company to manage it all. I didn't want any of that. I didn't want that. It wasn't for me. Okay. But if you want to do that, you can build a very passive business from that as well. But the advice really is single family house investing. That is where the misguided approach is and it's because no one really talks about it. And most people think it's a stepping stone to the other thing. So I would turn that advice. Yes, real estate is the way out, but not in the way that you think, which is most likely single family house investing. Might you consider this other form of real estate investing?
0: All of the information we've talked about today, I think has been great, but learning about it is only one part of the equation. The other big piece of the equation is actually going out and taking action on what we've learned so what is the first thing someone should do when they're done with this episode to start working towards their real estate goals?
1: First step is to have an open mind, because a lot of people listening to this are probably like, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to stick with my rentals. The first one is definitely an open mind, because uh, most people, again, are struggle with a lack of experience or a lack of capital. If you have an open mind, the next best thing is to educate yourself about this, and your podcast is doing a great job with that when we do this stuff and we get all excited about this new thing about real estate investing, our friends and family don't do that. They look at us like we're the black sheep and probably crazier. And they, worse, they try to talk us out of it. And they maybe even stop talking to us because they think we're crazy. And so you think you're crazy. And then when you come to these live events, for example, or these online communities with other crazy people like you, you're like, huh, maybe I'm not so crazy. And so finding a community of peers that are doing what you're doing and want to do what you want to do is is really, really critical.
0: And if you're looking for that type of community, definitely check out some of the stuff that Michael's doing. We also have our Facebook group with growing community that with a ton of people that are very like-minded to everything that we've talked about today. So feel free to check that out as well. But Michael, for those listening that really want to dive into your resources further and connect with you, where can they go to find you?
1: themichaelblank.com. That's a blank B-L-A-N-K and it's got a V in front of it because there's only one Michael Blanc. As it turns out, there's more than one. I don't understand this. So themichaelblank.com where you can just Google apartment building investing. And we have a podcast YouTube channel. We have the yellow book, Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. And that's how people can, uh, can find us.
0: Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to that in the show notes. I'll also put links to everything else that we've talked about throughout the show so everybody can go pick up those resources there. Michael, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Robert, this was fantastic. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys. That's all
0: I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week.
1: Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. (laughs)